Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. You know, you've been gone a long time when you were at the drinking fountain two weeks ago and somebody welcomed me to the church and I appreciated that. But it is uh, great to be back. I look forward to this day for, since the day I went on the sabbatical, I had occasion to do two major um, things that are different, at least the intensity level of them. I taught for the first half, essentially, of the time of sabbatical, which for me is refreshing. It's not, um, if I only have that to focus on and I'm with students, uh, there's some students I've become close to over the years of teaching at the same seminary in Colorado, and I teach church history there. I also teach pastoral duties, one week on on funerals, weddings, and visitation, things like that. But I've gotten to know these students well, and if I could just focus on them for that time, it's, it's refreshing to me to invest in them. And then the second half of the time I was um, taking a class at Midwestern Baptist Seminary. It's on uh, leadership track, on uh, principles, application of, development of leaders. And so that was a, a great time of focus, uh, talking to other pastors. They bring pastors in um, who have expertise in certain areas, and you have occasion or time with them. So both of those endeavors were really exhilarating for me, and I'm refreshed and ready to go. The last week, uh, a week ago, we brought our oldest son to college, so um, that's another step in uh, another phase of our lives, uh, which many of you have, have gone through already. So uh, it's, it's been a, a good time of refreshment, but it is uh, time to be back, and I'm ready to be back. I do want to thank the elders for this very gracious and thoughtful offering of a sabbatical every seven years for the pastoral staff. It's, uh, it's been a great blessing to us, and then uh, to you, the congregation, to be so encouraging about it. Hopefully not so encouraging that you're Yes, please, take off for a little while. You weren't like that, but you've been very uh, gracious in uh, understanding why this would be a good thing for uh, shepherds, for pastors. And for Pastor Nathan and the brothers and our ministry team and the sisters as well, our two administrative assistants, I want to thank them too. They're a great team, great giftings. Uh, The Lord's blessed us with them, and I knew you would be fed well while I was gone. And And it's a great time for everybody to grow in the things that we're doing. And so I'm very grateful for all of these brothers and sisters. I love them all, and I'm uh, grateful for them and their ministry among us. I know you are too. Now, with that, I'm already a little behind the eight ball because of all the things we've had in the service, and I've got a lot to say, as you can imagine. So I will try to keep it succinct. But we have come to the third part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has uh, traditionally been divided into three parts, and I think accurately. Remember that Isaiah ministered for 50-plus years as a prophet. It was primarily an oral tradition. So he's speaking, he's doing a speaking ministry. He's repeating themes over and over, over the course of his life. And things changed in Isaiah's time. I mean, it went from the northern and the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom being completely lost into exile um, by Assyria, um, the lost tribes of the nation of Israel. Still don't know where where they are. They're so assimilated. So it was left with just Judah, the southern kingdom, and God would not obliterate them because he was going to bring Messiah through them. So he was bound by his own oath to keep them uh, at least identified. But he would bring discipline to them for their lack of obedience in light of the grace he had shown them. And so Isaiah is writing, uh, most of the books written uh, with the northern kingdom in exile, and now he's warning the southern kingdom about, about what is to come. God delivers them from Assyria, but raises up Babylon. And all the while, Isaiah is preaching and teaching. Towards the end of his life, scholars generally think, and I think this is borne out in Near Eastern precedent, he puts together his book. It it summarizes all that which he has taught. So there's a a continuity to it, but there's also distinctions in it because he goes through phases. 
It's, it's one author, Isaiah, who's writing uh, the sum total of teaching over 50 years. The first third of it is focused on God is sovereign. God is sovereign and the nations must bow to him. And the nations are in sin and rebellion. And his people, who have been shown grace, have been promised grace, yet they are rebelling. They're not acting out um, their identity. So he speaks to them as the sovereign God bringing judgment. The second third of the book, which starts around chapter 40, all the way to 55, right before our text today, we have God's answer for how he will remedy the unfaithfulness of his people and make opportunity for all, not just his people now, ethnically speaking, but anyone who would believe upon his Christ. And it culminates in chapter 53. Chapter 53, the clear expression of the gospel. That's why we call this the gospel of Isaiah. Forecasting the one who would undo the unfaithfulness of the people. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him his Messiah, his faithful servant, the iniquity of us all. So he bids everybody in the face of their sin to look to Messiah, rest in him, uh, be reacquainted with the grace that he had already been preaching to his people, but they had, they had basically walked away from. It says in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The the Messiah would win his people to himself. And his people would not be defined just ethnically. This is important. Because the ultimate picture God has for his people is a diverse house of prayer. And thankfully, because we're all Gentiles here, unless you're 100% Jewish, you're a Gentile, and the foreigners spoken of in the passage here, that'd be us. So it's important for us to recognize that the Abrahamic covenant where God promises Abraham he'd make him a great nation, the total of it would be to be a blessing for all the nations. It was never, ever intended to be just focused on one nation, only insofar or so long as it took for Messiah to come. And then the door is open to the Gentiles. But the door was even open before Jesus came. They just had to come through the faith of Israel, which was faith in the coming Messiah. It's unified in this sense. Now, with that intro, we come to the last third of the book. The last third of the book rests in the finished work of the Messiah, and it bids the people against the backdrop of exile that they would experience in Babylon to start to show or reflect what they say they believe. Isn't that a common theme in scripture? God's done this work of grace for us. Now, people of God look like the people of God. Now, people of God, don't get confused. You can't um, do these things or obey these laws or follow these commands and then become the people of God. I've given you this through my Messiah who's borne your iniquities. Now show, reflect the righteousness of your covenant God as you walk through this life. So he begins this final third of the book, Isaiah chapter 56. Here as I read God's holy word, starting at verse 1 down to verse 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. 
For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, as we return to the study of this great prophecy of Isaiah, cause us to rest all the more firmly in the finished work of Christ and look all the more longingly to the great gathering of your people that you are in the middle of doing even now. Give us encouragement about your coming final salvation so that we might obey your precepts and live according to your commandments in the now, in the present. Guard us from being conformed to the fatally skewed and jumbled thinking of this messed up world, but rather through exposure to your word and by the ministry of your spirit, transform us by the renewal of our minds so that we may discern what is your will, that is what is good and acceptable and perfect. I lift this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. As you know uh, by now, the Bible uh, has a repeated focus on the work of God's salvation through Christ. Um, In this repeated message, in reality, it's supposed to do two things to people. For someone who doesn't know Christ, who isn't resting in the finished work of Christ, the proclamation of this message, the explanation of it, is what God uses to draw them into trusting Christ. So initial salvation is one of the results of the gospel of God's grace being expressed. And that gospel's the same from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. It's looking forward to the finished work of Christ to come in the book of Isaiah, and for us looking back at the finished work of Christ accomplished at the cross and testified to by the scriptures. So that initial work of salvation is the main fruit that comes from the proclamation of this message over and over, the the recollection of God's salvation. Uh, But the second thing that we should not lose is we need this repeated reminder of this message uh, because we as people who say we trust need that reminder. We need to be reinvigorated by the surety of Christ's final coming in final salvation. We've experienced it now, and then we start living our life, and we kind of forget this in-between time. What matters is what's yet to come still. So we look at what God has done for us in his salvation. We look forward to the finality of it, and that encourages us in the here and the now with whatever is happening in our life and in our circumstance. Really, that's what this is about. It's telling the people of God, reminding them of the promise of salvation so they would be invigorated to have passion for their God, to hold fast to him as it says in the text, but also to obey him and his precepts. Now, the beauty of this construct is that he's not telling them um, that you obey and then become my people. Look closely at verse 1 as you'll see how he invigorates us with the promise of final salvation. You might read it and say, you probably, your eyes glued to the Sabbath right away, and you started thinking, how is he going to explain that? And then you're thinking about justice and right, well, there's these things I cannot do. Uh, True, but but listen to what the text says. Verse 1. 
Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Now very carefully, what the passage does not say, it does not say keep justice and do righteousness so salvation will come or so that you can be saved or so that you can be sure of your salvation. It doesn't say that. It's saying, my salvation's coming, the salvation I've told you about, that the faithful have laid hold of, they believe in. So, in that light, follow my commands. Now, he wouldn't tell us to do something he couldn't, he wouldn't empower us to do. Now, we know that it's not like we would be able to do it in perfection, or even very well. But now, because we are in, in God, we have the ability to do things we could not have done before. God works through us as we rest on him. And where we fail, we rest on him all the more. So it's a beautiful picture of how it works for a believer, understanding how it is that God gives victory once they're in him. They're hiding in him, holding fast in him, resting in him. So it begins by reminding us that his salvation will come. Now for the reader here, it most likely is referring to when Messiah comes. All this forecasting of Messiah, when he comes, God's salvation comes, and his righteousness is revealed in the person of Christ. We see that looking back. But we also recognize that when Jesus came that first time, that was the beginning of his final salvation, which will reach its full potential, its full reality eventually when he wills and when he comes again. So as we read it, we can know, keep justice and righteousness, for soon his salvation will come. It has appeared and it will appear. And that helps us in between time while we are living this life. And we need that reinvigoration. We need that reminder, and it helps us live life now. Um, I've watched some playgrounds in the area go up recently as new, new developments have happened. And I notice, I don't see too many of those roundabouts or the merry-go-rounds going in. I think they must be too high of a liability because they're the most fun thing on the playground. You know the thing where you spin people around in them and keep spinning them around in them and try to stand there as long as you can? Um, I don't see a lot of those going in. I looked them up on eBay, and they're about six grand to put one in. So maybe that's the reason. But I think it's more because they're dangerous. But you remember how fun those were? Uh, not as fun as I've gotten older, but they were fun at one time. You get in there, and you, you can, on your own, run around the side, kick, 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 and then jump in the middle and just let the thing go, and then eventually it slows down and stops. Um, most fun is you get in the middle and have other people on the outside making the thing keep going. And then when it starts to get slow, they come to the side, and they give it a shove, or they run with it, and they let it go some more, and it keeps going. That's kind of a picture of the Christian life in some, to some degree. Um, we are in this fun, it's not fun necessarily, but we're progressing or we're moving, we're spinning, but sometimes it gets slow. We need um, times shots of invigoration or uh, shots to keep us going faster. And these shots are exposure to God's word and to the proclamation of his salvation, the expression of his commands. When we're exposed to his word, when we come and taste and we come and drink of it, um, we're reinvigorated. And we're able to keep on in our life uh, with God. This is important. We can't ignore it. We have to have these opportunities. We have to have these occasions. Um, The command in the present, resting on a promise for the future, is typical biblical ethics, as Alec Moyer so well puts. Another commentator says, Isaiah is not inviting people to seek salvation by their own works of righteousness, but urging, along with the rest of the Bible, those who belong to the Lord to devote themselves to the life that reflects what he has revealed to be right. And when the Bible talks about pursuing righteousness, it is equal to saying, pursue the Lord, go to the Lord. This is why in Isaiah 51, he says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. 
seeking the Lord goes hand in hand with his righteousness. And in verse 1, when it tells us, when it's adjuring us to keep justice and do righteousness, many commentators think justice and righteousness is the sum total of God's moral law to us. Um, There's debate about it, but it certainly covers justice, meaning that which is fair, which is very hard to find in this life among people. Uh, Pursue justice. Be fair when other people are not fair. When people are biased, you be fair. Be objective. And pursue righteousness. Pursue the Lord in his beauty, in who he is, in his character, in his goodness. That's what a believer pursues, someone who's resting in that work that's provided by the great and faithful servant. The word and the Lord's sacraments are perpetual reminders of the Lord's salvation. When I think of how regularly we need these things, I mean, we need them at least weekly, right, brothers and sisters? I mean, we, can't, we shouldn't go more than a week without gathering together, hearing the word proclaimed, the gospel reiterated, and then seeing it shown in the, the table, and then when we have the blessing of it, also shown by the baptismal waters, and we talk about salvation. God, sure, it takes us from the busyness of what's happening around us, which is important, but it puts us back in the place we need to be uh, mindful of. God's kingdom, his sovereignty, his coming, his provision, and his coming again. It reorientates our life so that we can um, really live as bright lights in a dark world. If you go without that for very long, it gets dim or the, the thing starts to go slower and it doesn't spin as fast. Basically, what we have as characteristic of the people of God can be found in verse 1, verse 2, and really through the passage, but just see what I mean. Um, what you have God calling the people to do is reflect their trust. They are to reflect what they say they hold fast to, what they believe. And in particular, God's covenant. God's covenant is his commitment to save a people for himself. And as he told Abraham, he would make a great nation of Abraham, and and the nations would be blessed through Abraham, and that eventually he would send uh, a savior to be the one person uh, to atone for our sins. And this becomes clearer and clearer as Scripture unfolds. And certainly by the time of Isaiah, there was clear picture uh, where they needed to place their trust. And so such people who held fast to that covenant should be branded by an obedience that marks their lives. Um, not an obedience that earns salvation, but an obedience that shows they're God's people. And where they fail, they will humbly go back to their Lord knowing his forgiveness is there, they'll offer their sacrifices, they'll recognize their dependence, and they're branded between, uh, with trust and obedience together. Not to be confused with obedience for salvation, but a believer who is saved by God's grace, now exhibiting a trust and an effort to be obeying or wanting to reflect God's righteousness in their actions. That's what the people of God are supposed to look like. Verse 1, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Verse 2, blessed is the man who does this. It does what? Who keeps justice, does righteousness. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Um, you'll see a, a marriage between doing and believing, believing and doing, trusting and obeying, obeying and trusting. They say they believe in Yahweh and their life exhibits this. Um, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. Uh, holding fast, by the way, is a, a way of saying believing in it or, or trusting in it or resting in it. 
Um, if you look at the passage all the way to the end, verse 1 through 8, you'll see a combination of statements about the people needing to trust and a, and a statement about the people needing to obey. Um, in verse 1, hold it. Uh, verse, or verse 2, holding, holding it fast. Verse 4, holding the covenant fast. Verse 6, holding the covenant fast. That's taking grip of God's covenant promises and pledges, trusting that they are true. Uh, verse 6, joining themselves to the Lord. That's, that's a volitional thing, that I rest in him and his salvation and his commandments. Love the name of the Lord, verse 6. This is what people who believe in God's salvation do. They love the name of the Lord. They're beholden to it for all he has done for them. But then notice also woven through the passage, not only are these trust statements there, but there are statements of obedience, for, things for us to obey. Verse 1, keep, right, keep justice. Do righteousness. And keep Sabbath is mentioned twice. We'll come back to that in a moment because it's mentioned again in a later chapter at length. Keep your hand from evil, verse 2. Choose things that please God, verse 4. Minister to him or serve him, verse 6. And then explicitly, verse 6, serve him. Verse 7, bring your burnt offerings. Now I want you to see these are, these are balances of trust and obedience statements. Um, the Sabbath. Why is the Sabbath brought out here? Interesting um, to hear the commentators um, give their ideas. And I, I think that the, the train of thought that makes the most sense. They were in exile in Babylon. This book was written for them during their time of exile. So they're in, they're in Babylon. There's no temple there. Um, they can't really do their, sacri- their sacrifices. They're not in Jerusalem. So the normal outward ways they would express their faith in God cannot be expressed now that they're in Babylon or they're outside of Jerusalem. So one of the things that would mark them as very different from anyone else would be their keeping the Sabbath. Now remember the Sabbath, though it's part of the Mosaic table, it was also a principle before that to rest one day in seven as a way of showing what? Faith in God to provide when we don't work that one day. Now there's benefits because then we are refreshed And God designed us for needing rest even before the fall. And so the Sabbath principle takes a codified form in the time of Moses. And it's a way they can express their faith in God by doing something the other nations wouldn't do. In fact, one commentator notes that Persians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, none of these thought of stopping work for one day out of the week. Um, Von Rad said it well, living as exiles among a people who did not practice Sabbath keeping made keeping the Sabbath a token of their distinct faith. It was in the exile that Sabbath and even circumcision, which is obviously a more uh, private rite or ritual, um, those would be distinctive status markers for the Israelites or the people of God. But the Sabbath, that would be noted. If you took a day off of work, that's a day where you may not be growing crops or picking crops and it could cost you something. So practicing Sabbath was a way to describe, I believe in Yahweh. I believe in God's provision for me. It's not only an obedience, it's a statement of faith too. There's a trust and obedience that marks the life of a person who understands God's provision of salvation. And when we hear about that salvation, we're invigorated to obey. Do you see how they work together so closely? And God uses this to mark his people and draw others uh, to himself. You know, the more the, the culture becomes godless, Um, There are a lot of negatives. Obviously, we are in danger of becoming like the culture around us, poisoned by it, for sure. Uh, But there's also the opportunity for Christians uh, to stand out without doing anything really that major or even courageous. 
to simply have certain priorities that are God's priorities, not as a way of saying, in your face, I'm more holy than you, just because they're important to us. I think of the Lord's Day, however you want to, uh, Christians have discussed all for, for as long as uh, the commandment was given, how that should look in a Christian's life. Well, it is the Lord's Day. And let's just say, at least in this culture, it's not hard uh, to have that as a priority and have opportunity for witness. Um, over these last 11 weeks, um, where I wasn't preaching in the morning, I would get up really refreshed, which was unusual. I go to bed earlier too and not be, I mean, I just, I'm stressed the night before. I just have a hard time sleeping, thinking about what I'm going to say and what's happening. It's, it's a heavy thing. I love it. I'm called to it, but it was nice for a few weeks not to have it. And so I get up in the morning and I would just go walk through the neighborhood just before I would go to church. And I would try to go to different churches to kind of see what was happening out there, friends of mine who are pastors at churches. So I had some time in the morning and I walk around the neighborhood and it kind of struck me how things have changed in American culture because I remember even growing up in an area that was predominantly Roman Catholic, most people did go to church in the morning and they'd be pretty, pretty empty in the neighborhoods. Here though, um, it just looks like any other day. I mean, the shopping centers are all just as open as they ever were. The restaurants, it's one of their busiest days. Um, people are in their house, their day to catch up, cut the lawn, play sports activities, whatever. It just kind of struck me how different things are in culture. Now, all I'm saying is that Christians committed to the Lord's Day, just being with the people of God, not being Ned Flanders about it. You know who Ned Flanders is? Only the really unsanctified will know this. So you're hiding right now, but I know who he is. He's the Christian figure on The Simpsons, and he's the guy that like always gets made fun of because he does all these overtly Christian things, kind of, and, and at least Homer thinks it's a judgment on him, which is kind of true, but it's, that's another thing. But Ned Flanders is that guy that kind of, uh, you know, this is a guy who... Uh, in one episode, he did, donated his kidney and his lung just out of the goodness of his heart to whoever needed it first. You don't have to do that, and you could still really uh, be a witness for Christ just by upholding some Christian principles. I'll bet you in your business place or in your school, if you're just not the one that talks a certain way, talks nasty, and I, I mean just, just gross, I mean if you're not that person, all of a sudden you're different. So there's lots of opportunities for the people of God to stand out as different. You figure out how they are. Not with the purpose of bringing judgment to others because they're not as good as us, but just live as God would call you to in his righteousness, and there'll be many opportunities for you to share the gospel with people. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? You'll have that opportunity. It's not hard to have it today. That's one of the benefits, you might say, of living in a difficult age, for sure. Now, I want you to see the sum total of the passage as it culminates, starting at verse 3 down to verse 8. There we have a picture of God's future plans for his expanding kingdom. Now, it's not that unusual to us because we have the benefit of living after the time of Jesus. He gave his great commission. We know forecasted in the book of Revelation that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be drawn to Christ. But for the people first hearing this, they knew the Abrahamic covenant, but they were still thinking pretty ethnocentrically about themselves, you know, just about their Jewishness. And he's reminding them that is not the final plan for this. The final plan for this is to touch all the nations with salvation. And so in verse 3, we see an address to foreigners and eunuchs. Why these two? Let not the foreigner, verse 3, who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. These two selected groups of people are distinct in this time because the foreigners um, would have been uh, plentiful in Babylon. Um, foreigners who were brought from other nations that Babylon conquered, uh, they would bring or deport people there. And so 
Uh, they would also deport people just to remove their identity. That's why the Jews were brought there to take them away from, from Ju- Jerusalem and make them Babylonians, essentially. But in Babylon, there would be a great number, a great uh, multi-ethnic horde of people around um, foreigners. And in their dealings with Israelites, some had come to believe on Yahweh, believe in the prophecies of Isaiah and the other prophets, trusted in what was depicted there, believed in it, held fast to the covenant of God's grace as they understood it, described by the prophets in the scriptures. And those foreigners might have been thinking, as this message unfolds and the Israelites are returned back to their promised land, which happened 70 years after this, maybe God will forget us because we're just foreigners again. And God says no, and he wants his people to hear this, and he wants those people to hear this, he wants everybody to hear this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, let them not say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. No, no, you're missing what makes up his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. What's with the eunuchs? What's their deal? Well, we know what their deal is, but why? Well, they were usually people of genius who were taken into Babylon. There was a concern that they would, they would make a name for themselves literally by propagating and then eventually become more powerful than the Babylonians. So they would be uh, emasculated so they couldn't have families, but they were used for their genius or whatever they were smart about. Think of Daniel and his friends. Now, we don't know they were eunuchs, but it was not uncommon to deport smart people like that and then place them in the service of the emperor. And so think of how downcast you would be if you were a foreigner who thought that God would not accept you. Imagine if you were watching the people of God make such a big deal out of their children, the promise to them and their children, and to the way God typically propagates his kingdom. And as a eunuch, you're saying, I'm just a dry tree. I can't do any of this. I can't be part of this expanding kingdom. But look what it says in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, those who trust in me and what I have revealed, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And there's a slight reference here, no doubt, to Absalom. You remember when Absalom was killed and he did not have any offspring, yet there was, there was a pillar set up for him in the king's valley to have remembrance of Absalom. Well, this kind of reference probably, probably refers to God's ability to make our name known, even if it's not by the normal means that people would have known. Moyer says it well, no one is excluded from membership of, God, of God's people, either by nation or ancestry accident of birth, parental or personal former affiliation to another God, falling below the creational standards of God, or deep and fundamental personal defect. Middle, the middle wall of partition has come tumbling down between the people, with other people, and between people and the Lord. This is the great promise of God's expanding kingdom. It's what he wills to do. Verse 7 These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Remember, the sacrifices were given in faith that they represented the thing they needed for salvation. So just the act of obeying showed their trust as well. And it didn't matter what ethnicity you were, what nation you came from, as long as you believed on God and his Messiah and you held fast to his covenant, 
you are his child. You are his, part of his people. For my house shall be called a house of prayer, in verse 7. For all peoples, the Lord God, that's Adonai Jehovah, only used once by the other prophets. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This probably reminds you of something the Lord Jesus said when he compared himself to the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. It says in verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now I know in the day and age in which we live, um, such, so much discuss, discussion about ethnicity and racism and all these things, and they're important discussions to have, and the church should be very careful to condemn such a sin as racism. But recognize in connection with this that we have something at base level that should really inform us of this. Because none of us are part of God's original people. We are all foreigners. None of us by ethnicity have our first connection with God. We are the foreigners that God forecast would come. We are the Gentiles who would come. We are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that he brought through the children of Abraham, but now makes clear has always ever been about faith in the Messiah. That should give us a, a sense of desire to see all the nations on earth come to know Christ. Uh, because we, have been, we were once aliens to the covenants of promise, were we not? But now we've been brought close because of the blood of Christ. So it is for us Gentiles to do our best to tell every other Gentile, and every other person for that matter, how they can be saved. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides these already gathered. Maybe you um, don't have a church background, or whatever your church background is different. It's, it, it, you feel awkward sometimes, perhaps. Uh, you feel out of place, maybe, among the people of God at times. Uh, you might come from the wrong side of tracks in your mind somehow, whatever those may be. You may have <clears throat> had things done to you uh, that make you feel out of place or not worthy of being here. You may have done things that make you wonder if you belong. Someone somewhere may have told you you don't fit. I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, uh, just as the prophets have said to everyone who would listen and every evangelist should say, there is nothing that you have done. There's nothing that's been done to you. There's nothing about you that does not make you belong here. What makes you belong here is rest in the finished work of Christ. You believe that that work has been done for you. You believe that your sins have been covered by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. If you rest upon that, whatever other societal barrier may be there, um, let God bring that down so you rest fully in what it means to be one of his covenant people. And we have all this in common. We are just awful sinners who have no hope save for God give a substitute. And he gave that substitute. And there's only one race. It's the chosen race, those who are in that substitute, that great servant Christ. And this message develops in antiquity and it grows from this place and it sees its, full, its fulfillment in Christ and his commission and it's working itself out now. That's the beauty and the joy of being in the church today. That we don't just keep it here. We look forward to the ways that we can see all tribes and tongues come to know Christ and call upon his name until he comes again. 
we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have begun this work of salvation um, in time and space when you proclaimed it in the Garden of Eden already, that you would send uh, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then, Lord, you have called uh, your people to believe on that message and your commitment to do this um, really from the beginning. Give us a renewed faith, uh, an invigorated faith that works itself out in obedience. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to un- always understand um, the relationship between uh, the faith you have given us and the works that you call us to perform. And I pray that you would empower us as we contemplate your gospel um, to live lives that model your commandments. But Lord, we know we are failures and that we are sinners and that we are utterly dependent upon your grace. And so we ask for that and we thank you for how you give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's together sing um, 469. We'll stand and sing as the elders come and prepare the table. Uh, 469 is how sweet and awesome is the place 